Welcome to Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. This is our second YouTube live event, and, uh, and I enjoy these because I enjoy Q&As. I enjoy interacting directly with you as an audience as best I can. Um, I think we're broadcasting across uh, a few social media platforms. Certainly, the questions are coming from a few social media platforms. Some of them have been uh, submitted in advance. But today, the, the theme, the topic for discussion is understanding what's happening in America. And what I'm getting at with that is, is not, you know, why haven't the potholes been filled in in your local county? Uh, or even to drill into some of the, uh, the specifics of politics. Rather, what we're getting at is understanding, helping you to connect the dots, as we do on this podcast, of the ideas that are driving um, the culture, the things that we, we see taking place in America today. And it's a, it's a question that I often get, and in fact, I've been getting for years from people, what's going on? What's going on? Um, how are we to make sense of the alphabet mafia's uh, agenda? What are we to make sense of what's happening economically? How are we to make sense of rioting in our streets, of what's ha happening you know, in education across the board? So in this podcast, what we seek to do is help you to connect all of those dots. And we're, we're talking, for instance, um, I think the podcast we dropped last week was on Saul Alinsky. Many of you are familiar with Saul Alinsky, but many more of you are not or were not um, familiar with who Saul Alinsky was or his influence. And when you understand something about this Marxist I'll call him really kind of a, he's more than a political theorist. I'll call him almost a military strategist for how to uh, take power, to seize power in a culture. When you understand Saul Alinsky's influence on someone like, oh, Hillary Clinton, who knew him, who wrote her senior thesis at Wellesley on him, when you understand his influence by proxy on Barack Obama, who's probably his most celebrated student, and again, by proxy, Obama never knew Alinsky. Alinsky, Alinsky was long since dead um, by the time that Barack Obama was deeply involved in politics. But when you understand that, you begin to go, okay, I think I have a little better understanding of what's going on. And in this podcast, we want to help you see the bigger picture in order to understand that. You know, it was my privilege... Uh, some years ago, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it was, but let's just say a very high, <laughs> very very highly placed person in American government calls me one day and says, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm surfing your website, and I'm reading an article that you've written on the border crisis and the ideas that are driving the border crisis. That is to say what's going on behind the leftist strategy, not just in the United States. It's what's driving progressives all across the Western world. They're doing the same thing in Europe, open borders policy, more or less. And this individual said, I'm sitting here and I'm reading this, you know, and I'm fighting what's going on there, but you're helping me to understand the philosophy that is behind it. And, and that particular article was about Karl Popper, uh, the philosopher Karl Popper, who wrote a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies and George Soros, not shockingly, who was a student of Karl Popper, founded an organization, a nonprofit called 
the Open Society Foundation. And I was connecting those dots and explaining this is what's driving, what's going behind there. And so I was, you know, I was very honored to hear from this individual to said, hey, thank you so much because you're helping me to understand what's going on behind that. And then he said, you know, I have some questions for you. As I read this article of yours, help me to understand that. He wanted to know that because he understood, and this person is a fighter, let's just say that, he understood that in order to combat his enemies, he needed to understand the mentality behind them. We just finished just a few minutes ago a podcast that will probably drop next week. Uh, we've titled Understanding the Woke Mind. How are you to understand the woke mind? How are you to make sense of those people who seem to be infected by what you know Elon Musk is, has uh, somewhat jokingly called the, the woke mind virus. So these are the things we talk about on this podcast. We have coming up this week on Friday, uh, our latest podcast will drop, which is about Bill Gates. Bill Gates, it is so important that you understand what this guy is about. And I'm not pursuing rabbit trails of conspiracy theories here. Rather, what I'm doing is I'm telling you in his own words, who Bill Gates is and what his agenda really is and why I think it's evil. The World Economic Forum. Uh, how does that relate to some of the things we're seeing in the United States? Klaus Schwab, who is that guy? So these are the things that we do on this podcast. I'm so appreciative of the many of you. We have well over 10,000 comments across all our podcast, you know, we've only been doing this for about six weeks. The ideas have uh, consequences. The ideas have podcasts. <laughs> the ideas have consequences. Podcast has only been going for about six weeks. Um, we have um, more than 2 million views on YouTube alone. I mean, that's so humbling um, to see what's happening there and to see that people are responding to that. And I think you people are feeling more and more readily equipped to not only navigate the culture, but to engage. I say this all the time. My goal in this podcast, my goal in this Q&A is to equip you, is to encourage you, and it is to mobilize you. Now, a few ground rules as we, as we move forward with the questions. I am not interested in drilling down into the specifics of candidates. As a rule, I just don't want to do that. I'm not that interested in getting into the into the details of theology, not because I don't think they matter, but because in a podcast like this, as much as possible, I'm looking for the common denominator among all Christians. What are the things that we can agree on? If you will agree on me that's with me that the sexualization of children is a great evil, that Marxism is a great evil, that abortion is a great evil, that that freedom is worth fighting for, you know, these are people that I want to unite with. I, I'm not interested in in seeking division with them because one believes in sprinkling and one believes in immersion. I'm just, I'm just, just not, just not prepared to go there again, not because I don't think those things matter, but because it's just not a fight I want to have in this podcast. It's not what this podcast is about. I will say this though. There are some of you who follow this podcast and who get in, and for all I know, you're bots, a lot of bots. You notice this, whenever a podcast drops, whatever our podcast drops, I would say like the first hour, the comments are stellar. And then suddenly it gets flooded with all this crap about Bitcoin and this kind of thing. Those are bots. Um, are there what, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to call seminar people. They're people who have been trained to try to muddy the water and to create division. 
Uh, that's what's going on with that. But there's some of you who, um, who appear in the comments that are asking questions that are addressed in the, co addressed in the podcast itself. Please watch the podcast before posting your comments. People want to hear informed comments, not ones that I've already addressed. Another thing is there are some who go into the comments who are legalists straight through. Those aren't people that I want as fans of this podcast. I just don't. Um, legalism has no faith in, uh, excuse me, has no place in the Christian faith in it. I'm certainly not interested in that as, uh, as part of the following of this podcast. And yet there are others of you who are asking awesome questions, great questions, and who are ready to act. You're ready to do something. And we want to point you in a direction of the things that you really can do as you gain greater understanding of what is happening in America today, what's happening across the Western world. You know, I travel so much. And one of the things that I hope to bring to a podcast like this is so many podcasters, and I don't mean to sound like I'm dumping on them because there are many fine podcasters who are out there, but so many just react to headlines. They're just reacting to headlines. That's not what this podcast is. That's not what it's about. Um, I mean, I could do that and hopefully even offer you some insights in doing that, but it's not really what I want to do. What I want to do is to develop ideas and to develop understanding. I mean, in a sense, every week on this podcast, I'm really teaching. I mean, it really comes down to, to teaching. And um, one of the things that really, really um, injects the content of a podcast like this with a more thoughtful perspective, in my opinion, is the fact that I'm not, as so many do, just simply pontificating from New York or D.C. I'm not just simply reacting to things, but I'm actually getting out into the world and I'm rubbing elbows with people at every station of life, both high and low. I'm seeing, you know, sometimes I'm clinking glasses on the Champs-Élysées in Paris or somewhere. And the next, um, I might be in a, a dangerous corner of the third world. Um, I might be engaging with people who, um, who, who lean towards terrorism or those people who are of, as I say on this show, ideologues. Um, that is to say people who are, who are um, absolutely possessed by the idea that their own worldview matters more than people. Their own ideas matter more than people. So I get out to engage with people who disagree with me. And of course, with many people who do agree with me. I try to um, interact with those people who are suffering around the world, who are being persecuted to hear their perspective. Because when you don't do that, ladies and gentlemen, you're, you're inclined to judge the rest of the world by your own limited experiences. So it's important that you travel. It's important that you don't just stay in the family life center at church, but that you rub elbows with unbelievers at the Y, that you talk with people who don't share your worldview so that you try to better understand them. And the more you do that, the better able you will be at engaging with them more effectively. So that's what we want to do on a podcast like this. So not just dumping out you know, negative information with you, uh, to you, on you, in order to depress you and leave you ready to, um, you know, Archie Bunker, you know, a generation ago, whenever Edith would start talking, 
for a very long time and he would become bored, he would pretend to open a drawer and take out a bottle of pills and start taking them. Or he'd pretend to take out a, you know, fake gun and, you know, commit suicide while she's talking. That's not what I want you to do. Um, rather, I want you to come away from this empowered, empowered and feeling like, okay, now I have a lens through which to understand the world. So that's what we're getting at today. So let's, let's go ahead and start with some questions. So first question here is from Jessica. And the question is, how do we wake people up to what is going on? Most people are living like it's still 2019. Well, I will say this. Jessica is very active in the comments on this podcast. And Jessica, I like your comments. You have very thoughtful comments. And it's always clear to me that she's actually watched. She's actually listened to the full podcast. I mean, she knows what's going on. And she is somebody, by the way, who takes very seriously. I recognize that name uh, because she takes very seriously what we're talking about here, to be informed, uh, to be encouraged, and to engage. She's seeking to do that. And she's, <laughs> she's engaging people in the comments um, with, um, with gusto. I think you're already doing it in a sense, Jessica. I mean, you are in that you are already engaging people and you're pushing back on an evil agenda. And with other people, you're seeking to inform them. So you're already doing that. I think I try to do it on a podcast like this. I, I think others of you, you don't have to have a big platform. You don't have to have a big platform to be effective. Are you prepared to engage the people within your own circle? You're engaging with people that I'll never meet. You know, you meet people that I don't know. You're able to share them. You're able to convince them. You're able to encourage them. Um, everybody sitting in this, in this studio, they're able to do that with people I don't know and will never meet. And you might be able to do it more effectively. Sometimes this, this irritates me, even though the intention is, it isn't, it isn't ill intended, there are a lot of people who will say to me, hey, Larry, I have this friend who is an atheist or whatever, and I'd really like you to meet them because the thinking is that Larry will be able to convince that person. And, uh, and I always think to myself, first of all, this won't be effective because they'll be threatened by me. They'll see me as, uh, you know, as somebody who's almost like a mercenary who's hired to come in and pound away at them. Secondly, because you're the one who knows them. I don't know them. You know them. And it's okay, by the way, so many people think before I engage with other people who disagree with me, I have to know all the answers. Before I took my oral examinations, you know, the best advice that was given to me was given to me by the eminent historian Forrest McDonald, uh, the late historian Forrest McDonald, Pulitzer Prize nominee, guy who had a profound influence on my own writing, my own career. But before I walked in to face a panel of five experts for three hours while they pounded away at me on five separate fields of history, he said this, if you don't know, say, I don't know. He said, because I promise you, they're not going to ask you questions. They don't already know the answers to. <laughs> that advice has served me so well, not just in that oral examination, but it served me well in life. Because if I get in front of a, you know, I don't have all the answers. I don't. I love the way Peter, Peter put it, um, where he says, always be ready to give answer. That word that is translated there as answer is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. And it means to give a defense. And it's sometimes translated that way. Always be ready to give answer or defense for the hope that is in you. That's the place to start. 
Can you defend, and I'm speaking to Christians here, I know that there are many people who are watching, listening to this podcast who are not Christians. But can you as a Christian, those of you who are Christians, can you defend that bit of ground, the hope that is in you? Can you defend your story of how Jesus Christ changed your life? Does it mean that you have all the answers on the, you know, on the, the you know, documents of, 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 of the Bible, on the various manuscripts, or you can answer every question of Old Testament violence or the science or uh, the apparent contradictions in Scripture? I stress the word apparent. doesn't mean you're prepared to answer all that, but can you defend the hope that is in you? And if you can defend that little bit of ground, that, that, that bit of ground becomes bigger, you know, as your faith grows and as your knowledge and understanding grows through your own scriptural reading, through your own, um, you know, listening to podcasts like this one, you're able to defend more and more ground. I love what Frederick the Great said. He said, he who defends all would defend nothing because you can't defend everything. There was a reason why when we were taking on the new atheists, scientists, top scientists with guys like Richard Dawkins. I didn't debate, I'm prepared to debate Richard Dawkins in half on history and philosophy, theology. There wasn't any way I was going to follow him into the tall weeds of science. There's no way I was going to do that. I, I'm not his equal in that, and I know that. That's stupid to think that I would be able you know, to do that. He's going to grab me by the floaties and take me to the deep end of the pool and drown me because that's an area where he has expertise. I'm not prepared to do that. But there are other areas where I am prepared to do that and have with, I hope, some degree of competence. Same thing is true for you. Next question. So we have a question here from someone in Brazil. Their username is Rinzek. And the question is... Love your country. How do we save America from Granchi and Alinsky-type politicians? Here in Brazil, unfortunately, it is already a dead end. And the name is Renzek? Rinzek. Okay, okay, um... Well, first, let me say this, Renzek. I appreciate your question from Brazil. I've been in Brazil many times. I was a guest at McKenzie Presbyterian University in Sao Paulo, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, one of the worst presentations I've ever given. <laughs> and uh, it was because it was on intelligent design and the translator did not speak very good English. And so a really great translator, when you're speaking, they can translate on the fly. As it was, I had to stop almost every sentence while um, the translation was taking place. And there were, <laughs> there were Brazilians sitting you know, close in the front row who knew English quite well and were saying, that's not what he just said. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was awful. That said, I really, really enjoyed engaging with and have, you know, I was in Brazil not, not terribly long ago. I was in Florianopolis, beautiful city. Love the Brazilian people. They're very friendly people, very outgoing people. And what Renzek is getting at there is their own country has been hijacked by um, Marxists. I think their election that they just went through, there were a lot of shenanigans in that election. Well, Bolsonaro uh, appeared to have lost. That didn't seem to be what, what actually happened. And you're seeing a populist uprising there, just like you're seeing populist uprisings in other parts of the world with the, the farmers in the Netherlands and the, uh, the, the freedom truck convoy in Canada and you know the things that are happening in this country and various other parts of the world. It's populists versus globalists. How do we stop them? How do we stop them? Um, 
that answer, the specifics of that, Renzik, I think are very, very difficult because I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. What's happening in Brazil is a little different from what's happening in the United States. For instance, um, our, our governmental institutions are being corrupted, but they're not as yet nearly as corrupt as they are, say, in Brazil. Um, our governmental institutions, our government representatives in this country are being told to ignore their constituents. But it's not yet as bad as it is in Western Europe where they ignore them in toto. Look at what Macron is doing in France. I was in France when all this rioting began. I've lived there. Um, I can tell you um, that the French just, the French government just simply does not care what the masses think. They just simply want to control them. We're moving in that direction, but we're not fully there yet. But I think one of the ways, Renzek, is to certainly inform yourself, inform others, and engage politically. Engage politically. Engage spiritually. Because at bottom, these are spiritual, these are spiritual problems. Because these are people who are utopians, who are driving us. Marxists are utopians. And they really believe that they can create a better world. They never have. They never have, and they never will. Next question. So this question was submitted in advance from Brian, and the question is, what is your take on the church's failure to deal with this decline? And as a Christian, do you think there's a spiritual warfare component? Let's start with the second half of that question first. Is there a spiritual warfare component? 100%. Frank Peretti, I think, was on this, you know, what, 30 years ago. You know, those books, this, this Present Darkness. I've forgotten the other one. Piercing the Darkness is, I think, the name of the second one. You should go read those. They're terrific novels, but they they also have um, uh, an element that I, I think gives us a picture, a biblical picture of the spiritual realm, which I believe is real. So, and and I, I've you know I hate to do this every every episode, but Dostoevsky. <laughs> At the end of every podcast, I should just say, but Dostoevsky. I should probably do a podcast just on Dostoevsky's literature and why I'm such a fan of it. Trust me, I've read a lot more than Dostoevsky, but he is so prescient now. Um, and this book, Demons, he's talking about, this book is about socialists. It's about socialist revolutionaries who sometimes it's translated as the possessed. You'll see translations of it that are called the possessed. Uh, uh, but the book is about how these are individuals who... They seem demonic, like they are absolutely possessed by demons. Dostoevsky believed they were. He thought they showed that kind of manifestation, that they were so, it was so hard to understand their thinking and to make contact with those minds. If you've tried to make contact with a woke mind, you find that it's almost impossible. And that is why we just did a podcast, won't drop for another 10 days or so, but we just did a podcast just a bit ago entitled um, Understanding the Woke Mind, or it'll be given a title that's you know similar to that. So, um, yeah, I do think there's a spiritual component. Okay, so two questions here I'm going to kind of roll together. So Fernando Cruz on YouTube here has asked, Fernando why, Cruz. Why do you think politicians are so silent on the human trafficking issue? And then rolling that in with a question that was submitted ahead of time from Lawrence is that there's a lot of chatter uh, around the war in Ukraine involving child trafficking, and based on your experiences in Ukraine, what do you think about that? Those are those are both 
great questions, and I'm glad you rolled them together because um, I've spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Some of you know that. I, I wrote a book um, called uh, The Grace Effect, which is about Ukraine. It's about our adoption of our daughter, Sasha, who is now happily married, hopefully watching. And um, Sasha I was abandoned at birth and raised in three different orphanages in Ukraine. We adopted her just before her 11th birthday, and um, she had suffered many great evils. By the way, it was, it was kind of funny and irritating that somebody put in the, con the comments, probably a bot or an operative, saying they thought it was so sad that they loved my work. They loved me. That The person said this, it's so sad to me that someone I love, meaning me, should be such a big supporter of Ukraine. Anybody who loves Larry will have read The Grace Effect. <laughs> I've dumped on Ukraine a lot and Russia. There are, no, there, there are no good guys in this war, I promise you. I've spent a lot of time in both of those countries. They are both, what I want to say, they're both deeply corrupt countries, deeply corrupt political cultures. And is, there's a, the United States may be the biggest enemy of all in this because our purposes in Ukraine, I think, are nefarious at best. Money laundering, <laughs> massively. Did you see the headline that the Pentagon said they accidentally gave Ukraine $6.7 billion too much through an accounting error? But they want to come after you if you Venmo somebody more than, is it $600? $600, they want to audit you over that. I think child trafficking is in a massive problem in Ukraine. And here's an interesting thing that I've been, I found myself rethinking a lot lately. When we were in the process of adopting Sasha, and her English was, at the time, was a work in progress, but what came through were all the rumors among children in orphanages that Westerners wanted to use you and that they, if you were adopted by them, that they were going to do evil things to you like harvest your organs. Um, or eat you. These are actual things they believed. And we found that this is, this is, this ran through multiple or, uh, or uh, what do I say, orphanages, excuse me. What's going on with these kids were these evil rumors that were spread by the, um, the government, those people running the orphanages in order to try to get the children not to want to be adopted. They, they weren't big on uh, on adoption. They would do everything they could. We had to bribe every single official in order to judge uh, adopt Sasha, except for one. Um, so this is how corrupt they are. But it's dawned on me in reflecting on on those rumors, in the light of all that we see happening in Ukraine right now, that Ukraine has always been a hotbed for human trafficking, and it is because they are. They are people, women mostly, but also little boys who are highly valued because they are white and because they, um, as, as Eastern Europeans, they're often very attractive. I mean, Sasha looks like Maria Sharapova is what friends of mine, you know, will say. And there's a lot of truth in that. So it is a, it is a place where human trafficking is going on in a very big way. We know this. I've had conversations with the traffickers themselves who are bringing them out of places like Ukraine, like Russia, like Moldova, uh, like Estonia. They're bringing them out of Eastern Europe and then selling them in the West. And they are, of course, undocumented. I know it's a novel, but, you know, the girl with the, what's it called? The dragon tattoo? Is that the name of that novel? 
yeah, the, that, that, those novels were kind of getting at the idea of trafficking, how much he actually knew of, of trafficking versus utterly you know, making it all up. I don't know. But what I will tell you is that human trafficking from Ukraine is a massive problem. As for why um, our government officials are silent on it, I think it's because they're party to it. I do. I am not prepared to do a podcast on Epstein Island because so much of that is shrouded in mystery. The Bill Gates podcast, I don't mention that. Not because, well, how many times did Bill Gates go there? 34 times, I think. That's, that's more than a little weird, isn't it? Like you might say the first time he went and he didn't know any better and that he was just told everything was good and then he got there and then he saw all these children running around and, you know, and, um, having physical interactions with um, these various rich men who are there and go, oh my gosh, I got to get, I got to get out of here. Well, you go back 34 times. And when your wife divorces you, apparently because she was deeply bothered by what he was doing on Epstein Island, that's a signal of something going on. Now, I don't get into that in this podcast because Bill Gates is evil enough without me even having to mention it. There's, there's so much that I can say about Bill Gates. I don't even need it. But what I will tell you is there's no question that human trafficking is going on in a big way. And by the way, I haven't seen it, but I've heard great reviews about Jim Caviezel's, Jim Caviezel's uh, movie. What's the name of it? Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom. I was going to say Cry of Freedom, but that's about South Africa. That's a different one. Um, Sound of Freedom, Jim Caviezel's movie. I'd love for somebody to send me a review of that. Next question. How has your background as a historian helped you understand what's happening around the globe right now? Boy, um, it has helped me in a very big way. And um, to me, by accident, I mean, I didn't set out to do this. I'd love to say that I saw everything that was coming and I decided I really needed to know this. I didn't. Um, I certainly didn't see it manifesting itself uh, in the West the way that it has Marxism, socialism in particular um, 30 plus years ago. But I was just fascinated with Marxism. I was fascinated. I mean, I'm a child of the Cold War. We grew up, you know, we were taught it. You know, we were taught it in high school. We were taught it in middle school. Um, we, um, we learned something about the Soviet Union. You know, when World War II ended, do you know how many Russian experts were in the State Department? One. One. It goes to show you how well prepared the United States was for understanding the Russian mind, for understanding the Cold War that we were about to engage in. That changed and they began, you know, um, urging Americans, you know, to take courses in these issues and science and so forth in order to understand um, our enemy or potential enemy uh, that much better. But by the time I came along, you know, I graduated high school in 1985, we, we were getting this stuff in high school. I mean, we were being taught actively what Marxism, what socialism, um, Stalinism, what these things were. And I was fascinated by them. And so I decided, I think I'm going to pursue degrees in this. So I did. Uh, my, my bachelor's, master's degree there in um, European history with concentrations in Russian, Marxism, socialism. You just simply cannot understand uh, the history of Europe without knowing something about those things. But here's the great irony. The Soviet Union collapsed as I was making these things, you know, my 
major, my focus of study. And so I was being told by my advisors, don't do this, Larry. This is, there's no future in this. There's no future in this. Um, you know, there are going to be loads. I mean, at the time I was thinking I'd be a, you know, professor at a university or something. And um, you won't be able to get a job because these guys are all going to be unemployed because the Cold War is over and because, and this was the phrase they used at the time, Marxism, communism, socialism are on the ash heap of history. Sometimes people would say the trash heap of history. It's done, it's over, that battle is fought. You can go and read Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, in which he basically said, you know, this is all over. Done. We're going to win. Democracy is going to win out. And yet, as I saw the rise of Putin, as I saw the rise of intersectionality in the West, critical theory, critical race theory, I thought, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> this is all stuff I've studied and I'm very familiar with. And Americans are not understanding it because they don't know what it is. So for me, I would say that it, it helped me hugely, but that's simply because I studied issues that mattered. In other words, I didn't get a degree. I'll never forget. I'll never forget attending the American Historical Association Conference in Atlanta in, I think, 96, where one of the theses being presented was Hillbillies and Queers. This actual title, by the way, so before somebody objects. Hillbillies and Queers, the, the Gay and Lesbian Experience in Appalachia between 1920 and 1930. You know, so I didn't, I didn't bother to get a degree in something so obscure and pointless as that. Do you think globalists are deliberately trying to destroy the U.S. dollar? And if so, what can we do to protect ourselves and our families? And that question is from Susan. Ask uh, ahead of time. <clears throat> Susan, I uh, first want to acknowledge this. I am not an economist, and I have not studied that issue very carefully. So what I will tell you, well, I, I say with, with some reservation. Uh, you should check it out for yourself. But in listening to people who are very savvy uh, on this issue, much more so um, than myself, they would say the answer is yes. They would say that the answer is yes to dilute it, to dilute its effect in order to usher in a, um, a, a um, an economic crisis. Because that's how Marxists, that's how fascists seize power. And we're seeing a combination of both in the Western world. It's not just Marxism and not just socialism is fascism as well. We're seeing both of them and crises are always used to their advantage. Take the pandemic. I mean, government power extended like kudzu during the pandemic. Um, it was, it was a governmental dream to have that. Um, but in order to, to usher in econ economic crises and secondly, in order to, destroy the U.S. dollar to bring in digital currency. Uh, they're definitely heading in that direction, but that's my read on the situation. Okay, so another question actually kind of related to the, the COVID thing here. So the question is, why did so many Christians fall into a lot of the virus and COVID rhetoric and basically start condemning each other over a lot of the, the things that came out of that? This is, that question is from O'Brien, by the way. Okay, O'Brien, great question. This is what I call Christian-ish. So the question is, why would Christians so readily fall for that? Now, I want to I start by saying this. I do not fall in the category of someone who condemns you if you choose to wear a mask or choose not to wear a mask. 
I do not condemn you if you chose to get vaccinated or chose not to get vaccinated. I condemn you if you're one of those individuals who says you must do what I chose to do. And that's on either side of that, by the way. There's some people who just, you know, just go bonkers if you're not wearing a mask. But there are also people who go bonkers if you are. I, I think it's your choice. I believe in, I believe in freedom in, uh, in that regard. As for why so many Christians bought into the governmental narrative, I think it's a misunderstanding of Romans 13, where Apostle Paul speaks of submitting to the authorities. And in that, I may be giving them too much credit that they have actually read Romans 13. Secondly, I think that it is a, um, it is people who are what I call Christian-ish. They don't actually, their faith isn't actually grounded on scripture. Their faith is grounded on Christian sentiment. And those two are not the same thing. So they easily, their, their faith is easily hijacked for nefarious causes when they are told that group of people over there are being unloving by not wearing a mask and by not getting vaccinated and by not observing lockdowns. I don't, by the way, I don't think you should observe lockdowns. I don't. I think you should rebel against lockdowns. It's 100% unconstitutional. Government should not have that power. People need to, by the millions, violate them whenever they're instituted. And they will be instituted again. They will. But um, it's not Christian to go around trying to put a beat down on people in, uh, in that way. And I don't think those people behaved like Christians. So why were they doing it? Because they're not actually rooted in Scripture. They're Christian-ish. Next question. So a question from YouTube here from Sigma Media. And the question is, how do I express my newfound young faith after having been against the Lord my whole life? Wow, what a question. I love that question. Thank you for sending that question. Sigma Media. That's a very odd name for yourself, by the way, Mr. Media. Um, <laughs> get in the Word. Get in Scripture. You need to be in Scripture. Cool story. Years ago, I was in Turkey um, talking with persecuted Christians. And two of them separately, one of them in in Ankara, I believe, and the other one in Istanbul, guys who had never met, both of them Turkish. They, you know how they became Christians? Neither of them became Christians because they'd ever met Christians. They both became Christians because they read the Bible. One, one of them told me, he said, I managed to get, it's a great story. He said, I was a devout Muslim. He said, I went to a Muslim book fair. <laughs> and he said, somehow in the middle of that book fair, um, InterVarsity had a book table. <laughs> he said, I thought, okay, well, apparently this is approved. And um, he said, I got a Bible from them. They gave me a Bible. And I thought, okay, apparently this book fair has approved, this Muslim book fair has approved having these Christians here because they think we should read the Bible to better understand our Muslim faith and to combat it. And he said, that night I read the whole New Testament the whole New Testament in one night. And he said, when I was done, I said, I've never read anything like this. This has to be true. He said, read so differently from the Quran. He said, I knew this had to be true. And he said, and I became a Christian without meeting another Christian. 
And right away, this guy was off and running. His, his young faith, like yours, Sigma Media, was off and running because he was immediately grounded in Scripture, not the Christian-ish. Avoid the Christian-ish. Also, try to get involved in a church that is Bible-believing and teaching, and this is important. You need to make sure that just because it has a steeple, just because somebody's wearing the vestments, just because they're, they appear to be distributing the sacraments and sing hymns, doesn't mean it's actually Christian. These days, it's actually hard to, to tell the, the difference. There are a lot of brick-and-mortar churches that aren't actually, biblically speaking, churches anymore. It's because they don't take Scripture seriously. Make sure that you, you get into one that is Bible-believing and teaching. It teaches the full counsel of God. But welcome. I'm so delighted that you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you find it helpful, and I wish you nothing but God's blessing. What role do you think social media and the internet have played in the speed of radicalization among young people, and how should parents adapt in an increasingly digital world? Um, Brilliant question. Um, I think that social media has advanced the radical agenda hugely. A, first of all, we now, we know, we always suspected it, that the, um, you know, the monitors of social media had their finger on the scale. And they had it on the scale in favor of a radical leftist agenda. I mean, was his name? Jack Dorsey at Twitter, previous overlord at Twitter, said that what they were wanted to do with Twitter was to amplify radical leftist voices in order to give them, give the appearance of disproportionate representation. That's why so many, you see, it's that that has made so many conservatives, so many Christians, so many people who love America, for instance, feel discouraged because they go, oh, wow, we're so outnumbered. You aren't outnumbered. You are the majority. Social media will give you that impression. And the fact that they control mainstream media gives you that impression. It makes you feel outnumbered. So when Elon Musk came along and he bought Twitter and he began exposing through the Twitter files the rot of Twitter and who the monitors were by name. Look up a guy by the name of Yoel Roth. What a complete scumbag. Promoting pedophilia on Twitter quite knowingly, wrote a thesis on it, apparently. Social media has advanced the radical agenda in a very big way because, A, it's made those people feel very strong, very empowered, and it has, it has encouraged them to do what I want you to do. It has encouraged them to get out into the streets and to engage the culture, which they're doing in a very big way. That has to change. That has to change. Next question. So this one's actually related to that, and it's given the radicalization of the education system and its apparent role in America's decline, what should parents do? Get your kids out of schools, and not necessarily just public schools. Um, not every private school is a good public private school. I was educated both in public schools that were basically like today's Christian schools and in private schools, and I taught in um, a preparatory school, expensive elite preparatory school, which was just as leftist as could be. And, um, and of course, I've spoken in loads of public schools, colleges, universities. Uh, so I speak with some authority in this regard. And uh, of course, we homeschooled, as I already said, 
my own children. In other words, being in those environments, I knew right away, we need to homeschool our kids. I don't want my kids in these environments. You should be the most important influence in your child's life. It shouldn't be some other person. It shouldn't be the youth minister. It shouldn't be some teacher. Parents today, we are where we are in large part because parents, a couple of decades ago, no, more than that, uh, a few generations ago, decided to outsource the education of their children. You're charged, Deuteronomy 6-7, you're charged with the education of your children and you will be held accountable for it. So get your kids out of school. Can you homeschool them? Get with a homeschooling group. Talk to them. Talk to people who do it. My wife counsels loads of people who think they wouldn't be able to do it and discover that they did. You know, the very interesting thing we discovered when we homeschooled is how much wasted time there is in school. You see, the illusion is the... the um, the great deception is, is, oh my gosh, you know, if I homeschool, it's going to take up so much of my time. It's just the opposite. You discover how much of your time is being taken up with your kids in public and private schools. Parents, I know, um, you know, they're, they're, the mom lives in the van. Their lives surround the school. Our children's lives surrounded the family, not vice versa. And we also discovered our kids were finished with school in about three hours. <laughs> I mean, when they were little, when they got a little bit older and started getting into the very difficult maths and sciences and some heavy reading, their days went a little longer, let's say five hours. But then they're done because school is a lot of downtime and it's a lot of dead time. And they could graduate early because they're done. Next question. Question here was asked in advance from David, and it's a two-parter here. It is, how can we uh, combat the World Economic Forum's influence in the U.S.? And how much really can the U.S. take before it's essentially too far gone? Two-part question. We have not reached the tipping point yet in the United States. Some people think that we have. I do not believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is because evangelicals still number a very big part of the U.S. population. They just have to be mobilized to say nothing of, um, of other Christians. Um, they just need to be equipped and mobilized. That's, that's what has to happen in that regard. So that wasn't true in, in Britain, and it wasn't true in Western Europe, where Christians have become Bible-believing Christians. Certainly evangelicals are less than 2% of the population. Not true in the United States. So no, I don't think we're at a tipping point yet, and um, some of our governmental institutions still operate. So uh, um, yeah, I think we, but you know, ballot harvesting has to be stopped. Republicans, if they do not understand what's happening with ballot harvesting, I don't care how many people show up at their rallies, they're not gonna win anything. Ballot harvesting is going on in a very, very, very big way to hijack elections. That is definitely happening. As for the World Economic Forum, you have to put pressure on governmental authorities. They need to hear from you. I keep saying this. They need to hear your voices. They need to know that you won't tolerate them handing over American sovereignty to international bodies like the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum or the United Nations or whoever it is. That just simply can't happen. They need to know that. So the way to combat the World Economic Forum is to start at home with your own representatives, your own government representatives. So we have actually have a question that's perfect for that from Kelly. And the, uh, the question is, given the amount of corruption in the U.S. government, is there really any point in writing to our congressmen or senators? Honestly, we are facing worldwide issues at this point, and I believe that we are at the point of no return. 
Well, as I just said, um, Kelly, I don't believe we're at the point of no return and not due to any cleverness of my own or because, you know, I've adopted some kind of conservative version of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals for the seizure of power. It's just because I believe in God. I mean, you know, the story of Gideon, you know, he used 300. He used 300. He used David as, as, um, as I referenced in today's podcast. He, Jesus changed the world with 12. So do I believe he can use the many millions of people in this country to change the country? Of course he can. Of course he can. But we have to ask him. We have to, we have to bring him to bear. We have to bring him into the discussion, and not ashamedly so, with confidence. Uh, that is one thing. What's the other part of the, the question there? Can, is there any point in, you know, writing to our congressmen and senators? Yes, like, absolutely. The electoral, you know, the, the government corruption. You know, the, you know, the story of the, um, and I'm going from memory here, so I might not remember this exactly rightly, but the parable of the persistent widow, the impression you get is the judge that she's going to is himself somewhat corrupt. <laughs> and yet he ends up giving her justice simply to get her off his back. And Jesus' point in telling that story is to say, if, if a judge of this type would give justice, how much more will your heavenly Father who loves you? If you who are evil wouldn't give your, your child a scorpion if he asked for bread, how much more will your Father in heaven give you if you ask him? So rather than feeling defeatist, I don't feel defeatist. I play to win. And, uh, and I think that's the way the Lord would have us think. So we have a few questions that are, are similar to this one. Uh, I'll use this version of it here. So the question is, what should I do with a friend who has seemingly lost her faith and has now become woke? <clears throat> All you needed to do was to say that she'd become woke. It'd be obvious <laughs> that she's lost her faith. Uh, what do you do with someone like that? Well, I think you pray for them. Um, I think you continue to share your faith with them. But don't throw pearls before swine. There comes, a, there comes a point with an individual like that where you need to dust off the, your sandals and move on. That doesn't mean that you can't circle back. It doesn't mean at some point they won't, their hearts won't become softened to the gospel. But um, I don't think we beat our heads um, against a wall. I don't think that we just chase after people indefinitely. Uh, you know, Jesus said the fields are wide and ready for harvest. There are plenty more uh, who are out there who are ready to hear the words of truth. So share it with them and just pray for this individual and try a conversation with them. And if it doesn't seem to work, then um, just pray that much harder and hope that there's another opportunity. What has historically made the United States special and where did it go wrong? Well, that is a question I love and that we'll devote a podcast um, to this, but I wrote a book, it's not sitting here on the table, but I wrote a book called Around the World in More Than 80 Days, and I develop in it <clears throat> something I call The Grace Effect. Now, The Grace Effect is the title of uh, my first book, but The Grace Effect, I am essentially arguing this, that if human nature is the same the world over, and every thoughtful person I know would say that it is, then how do we account for the fact that the United States is different from North Korea? How do we account for the fact that France is different from Russia? How do we account for the fact that Nigeria is different from 
the Netherlands. Well, the differences, if human nature is the same the world over, and it is, has to do with the ideas that those countries have adopted at a societal level. What are the ideas that they have absorbed? And those ideas begin to be expressed in the, in the actions of people, okay? So when a society, let's say Saudi Arabia, absorbs an Islamic, in this case a Sunni Islamic worldview, it expresses itself in the art, in the literature, in the laws, in the architecture. It expresses itself in everything, you see. Well, we haven't adopted those ideas here, and that's why we're not like them. Why does North Korea look the way it does? Because they've adopted what I argue is <clears throat> atheism masquerading as political philosophy, which is a type of socialism, Marxism, communism. And that's why their society is a complete ruin at every level and why human beings have no actual value, because in an atheistic worldview, they don't. They don't. There's nothing to give them intrinsic value. You're just a product of random chance and necessity, you see. So the United States, what has traditionally made the United States different is that the United States has been heavily influenced by the Christian gospel. Heavily influenced. It's coded into our laws. It's encoded into our, our founding documents. It's encoded into our art, into our literature, into the way we interact as a people. Even those people who aren't themselves Christians have been deeply influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview. They've, they've inhaled deeply of it, and it's affected the way they think. That is changing in a very big way as we are attacking the Christian faith, which is, by the way, like cannibalizing yourself. We are attacking the very foundations of our society, thinking that we can keep the superstructure if we knock out the substructure, and it can't happen. What do you think the importance is, and how do we reclaim a proper biblical manhood in this country? How do we reclaim a proper biblical manhood in this country? <clears throat> well, um, again, you got to get into the word and have some better understanding of what the lanes are for men and women. The biblical argument, whether you like it or not, is this. I'm just, I'm just here telling you the truth, people. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you. The biblical model is that men and women, while equal, have very different roles. I think it's, I, th I think it, is it, is it? Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. Can somebody look that up? Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, that condemns men for dressing like women. I think it does. Somewhere in there. Um, I mean, the Bible itself, it, meaning here, here you are in this kind of an obscure passage of the Bible. This isn't actually a treatise on the role of men and women, but here it says it's an abomination for men to dress like women, for women to dress like men. An abomination, that's pretty strong wording. The point is you're supposed to be different. The Apostle Paul speaks of, you know, the hair of men and women. It is a shame for a man to wear his hair long, he says, because what he's getting at is that it's feminine. And it is a shame for a woman to shear off her hair, he says. These are just subtle little indicators in Scripture that are saying you have different lanes. Be different. Women embrace the feminine. Men embrace the masculine. Do understand your God-given roles. Embrace them. Enjoy them. 
luxuriate in them. In order for us to recapture, and I, I do believe men are mostly responsible for the sexual confusion, the so-called, and it is sexual, not gender. Gender is grammar. Sex is biological. And there are only two sexes, men and women, male and female. God created them. Uh, I think men are mostly responsible for this. And I think it's because um, we as men have abused our roles often and have added to the confusion in that regard. And it has caused women in many instances to react to that. You know, God speaks of women as a, as a helpmate. Again, not making this up. This is the way um, scripture puts it. And that men and women are happiest. They're most contented in their God-given roles. But a man can also abuse biblical mandates like submission and, and uh, a woman as his helper to see himself as superior in some way, um, to see a woman as subservient to him, as lesser. And you better believe that's going to get a reaction, and, uh, and rightfully so. But I do, I do think that, that part of recapturing um, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is understanding just what the Bible itself has to say about those two roles and that we should celebrate them. Rather than rebelling against them, love them, lean into them. You know, it's very interesting is, you know, Lori was with me as we were, and, and my mom, in, uh, in South America. And both of them made this observation that I thought was very, very interesting. Was um, they were saying, do you notice that the women here, that they really, really lean into their femininity, that they see their femininity not as weakness, they see it as power, as influence. And I thought, you know, that actually is dead on. They put their finger right on something that you, you, you felt, but you, you couldn't actually um, identify. Uh, for instance, South American women, generally speaking, no matter what their age, their hair is long. Their hair is long. Uh, they wear dresses. Um, they enjoy the feminine. Now, there's much to be criticized there, uh, I'm sure, but the point is the, the alphabet mafia agenda hasn't yet penetrated that continent or Africa either, in a uh, in a real big way. Other questions? We've got we've got time for what? Maybe one more question. Would you say? Yeah, thereabouts. I think maybe two. So, what would you say to someone who says that the Bible reaffirms socialism? Well, that's complete nonsense, <laughs> and that is for this reason. Um, does the Bible reaffirm socialism? That's somewhat. Some people who say that are individuals. This is Tim Keller, by the way, in in some some respects. This is someone who either does not understand what Christianity is or doesn't understand what socialism is or both. The Bible does away with socialism right away in uh, Exodus 20. Thou shalt not steal. It obliterates socialism with that one commandment. Why? Because socialism, socialism maintains there is no private property. It maintains there is no private property, that it's all, everything is, you know, is, is held in common. Then some people will go to Acts. I think it's Acts chapter 2. Well, they say, well, they held everything in common. And, you know, Acts 6, where it says a complaint arose from the uh, Hellenists against the Jews in the daily distribution of the bread because they were sharing all things in common. That was volitional. That's different. Sharing or giving is volitional. It's not state mandated. 
There's a great big difference in that. I'll never forget some years ago, a woman was stumping for Governor Riley, who strangely enough was a Republican, who wanted to increase taxes in the state of Alabama. He wanted to increase uh, them for the, for the children, for education. And he had a woman who had a PhD from Beeson Divinity School going around stumping on his behalf saying Jesus would vote yes. They were putting signs in yards that said Jesus would vote yes. And I just plowed into her <laughs> with, with that argument. And you know what she went to? She went to Acts chapter 5. She said, well, Ananias and Sapphira were killed because they didn't share what they had. That is not what happens in Acts chapter 5. Not at all. In fact, Peter, as if, as if anticipating this controversy, said, was the property not yours? And then he says, after you sold it, were the proceeds not yours to do with whatever you wanted? He is there affirming private property. He's also affirming they didn't have to give a dime of it. They were stricken dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what happened there. It wasn't because they didn't give enough. That is, that is nefarious preaching of the worst kind. It's the kind of preaching in a pulpit that guilts people into giving more. Give, give more, but do so joyfully and understanding that the Lord gives you freedom in doing that. We are stewards of the things that God gives us. They don't belong to the state. You need to resist that. So socialism is a great evil that seeks to sock puppet, as I say, the Christian faith with this kind of argument because it seeks to replace God with the state to make the state God, an object of worship, a secular object of worship. And <laughs> as Dostoevsky says, <laughs> to build the Tower of Babel, not to mount heaven from earth, but to mount earth from heaven. In other words, to bring heaven down to earth to create a utopia. It is absolutely a hellish philosophy. You put that on my, it's my son talking to me over here. Put that on my tombstone. He hated socialism. <laughs> Can do. <laughs> we done? Any more questions, guys? We can do one more or call it there. Okay. Well, I think we'll call it right there. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to do these pretty regularly. We're going to be doing them, you know, not every week, but almost every week, engaging with you. So prepare your questions. Come ready to discuss. I hope you will subscribe to the YouTube channel. I th hope you'll follow me on Twitter. Who knows what will happen on YouTube? Follow me on Twitter, which is for now uh, a somewhat free speech platform and uh, and also share this podcast. The ideas have consequences podcast is new. We're just getting started. We need to get the word out about this podcast so that we can equip and inform good people like you. And again, I thank you so much for watching, for listening. We're honored by that. You guys have a great day.